Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Happy holidays, Pacific Northwest, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I am your jolly host, Christopher Chan, event sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and your baron of brewskis. And uh, I was just thinking about this. i got a fantastic lineup today. I've got uh, Master Sommelier Fred Dexheimer is calling me from New York. We're going to talk about a hot new wine. Well, it's not so new, and it's but it is really hot. Uh, it's kind of taken on the wine scene, the red wine scene. It's called Carmenere, and that comes from Chile. Of course, we got some in Washington State, but we're going to chat up about all the beautiful qualities and unique traits of this grape called Carmenere with uh, Master Sommelier Fred Dexheimer. And uh, one of my favorite beers in my uh, youth, and actually in my adulthood, because I guess I'm an adult now, um, has been Pyramid Snowcap. And I am so, f- so thrilled to actually have a chance to talk with uh, the head brewer. Ryan Pappy of Snowcap uh, and Pyramid Breweries. He's online, but I was just thinking, you know, it's a have yourself a very tasty brewski. And that's uh, that'll be my intro to Ryan Pappy. Hey, pal, welcome to Happy Hour. Hi, thanks. Happy to be here. <laughs> well, it is the season to be happy and jolly and bright. And uh, um, I was a home brewer back in uh, just out, out of college, so the late 80s. And I made a bunch of beers and I put on a bunch of weight because you got to drink it all. Um, <laughs> sure. How did you start? How did you get into brewing? You know, I uh, same way myself. I, uh, I graduated from college in the year 2000. Doesn't seem like that long ago. And uh, moved into a house with some college friends and had the first time, yeah, for the first time in my life, to take up a hobby, really. So uh, I picked home brewing, uh, had the built-in customer base with my, my housemates, <laughs> and kept at it, brewing almost every weekend for about five years, and uh, caught the bug. Wow. Every weekend for five years? Well, you know, it was, wow. geez, there was you know, maybe some, some time off here and there during the summer to go off and do things. But, I know. Uh, well, it, it evolved into uh, sort of a, a house utility that everyone paid into. So I had to pull up my side of the bargain and, and uh, keep the beer flowing. That's great. They kept you on your toes. Was it about uh, bigger and more potent, or was it about balance at some point? Oh, I don't think uh, at that time that anyone was too picky. Uh, they they would they would drink anything I made. Uh, I judged how good it was by how quickly it disappeared. Uh, that was my sort of built-in rating. If five gallons went. In a week, then uh, it was pretty good. Now, I used to, uh, as soon as I started boiling a wort, I would bottle the previous beer. So I'd always like, you know, you can't just sit there and wait for your wort to boil. You got to do something. So I was exactly. doing that same method, kind of a, a little Ford, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, Ford line of, of production line anyway. Um, so how did you uh-huh. find your way to uh, to Pyramid? Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I, I was homebrewing uh here in Portland, Oregon, and uh, decided I wanted to get into this career. So uh, I I had uh, a friend of a friend that was uh, brewing in Cleveland, Ohio, and gave me a chance to to be his assistant. So I picked up and moved across the country, sight unseen to Cleveland, which uh, Cleveland you know, rocks. Cleveland rocks. It's, yeah. It was a good experience, a big adventure. Definitely very different from. From the Northwest, um, Pappy's big adventure, there. huh? <laughs> it was, yeah. So I was there for a year and a half, and then uh, worked my way back west to get get back 
where where I was from and where I wanted to wanted to be. Um, so I uh, spent a year at Dick's Brewing, which is uh, in Centralia, Washington. Yeah, and then I uh, was able to to get on with Pyramid. Very cool. I've been here for about eight years. Well, I remember driving down to visit uh, my mom, who was in uh, uh, grad school in Oregon. So I would drive in Kalama, Washington, and see that Pyramid Brewery. They had uh, there was a clamor brewing back then. I forget, but I remember seeing the brewery wow. there. And then in 1990, lo and behold, they came up to uh, Seattle when Seattle was just starting to explode. The 1990 Goodwill Games, and we were just like the talk of the town back then. So Pyramid's yeah. got what 30 years now, or how many years? So that was 32. This is 32nd anniversary. Yeah, 30. I think it's 32nd anniversary this year. It's it's. I, I can tell you that that's well before my time, but uh, I do <laughs> I do remember enjoying some of our beers before I really knew what was going on. Uh, so it's it's cool to... Yeah, one know. of the first, right? Yeah. It was Hearts Brewing out of Yakima, yeah. um, Pyramid, and of course, Red Hook. And uh, gosh, after that, I think it was the Oregon people came on, the Full Sails and the Rogues. And mm-hmm. um, we got a huge history here. And there's some great books out there for about uh, Northwest beers and the craft beer movement. And also, I mean, the brewing uh, industry here, uh, the history here in the, in the Pacific Northwest goes hundreds of years. We were making, we had breweries back in the 1800s. That's right. That's right. That's uh, we've we've always been thirsty here in the Northwest. Uh, with <laughs> the rest of the do. country, we we decided to try not drinking for a little while, and that didn't work so well. Yeah. Been well. working to to get back to where we were. You know, over a hundred years ago. That's so funny. If the government can tax it, it will be legal. That's, that's so eventually. Funny. Eventually, they they put their priority straight. Uh, well, um, <laughs> I'm so pleased to have a chance to talk to you, Ryan Pappy, head brewer for the Pyramid Brewing Company, and um, this is a special uh, a day because this is the 30th anniversary of one of my favorite products of your line, um, Pyramid Snowcap. Tell me about this beer. This is. Uh, at this point, a very uh, old school sort of Northwest craft winter warmer. It's a uh, it's a holiday beer. It's it's dark. It's strong. It's chocolatey and caramely, um, and has a nice hot bitterness. It's uh, and I, <laughs> I think as as palates changed over the years, it it used to be something that would have been sort of really big and strong and 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 stood out from the crowd. But now that everyone expects IPAs to be up around you know six seven percent, it it doesn't. Maybe doesn't have quite the the cachet as as a high alcohol beer, but it's 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 maintained its deliciousness over thirty years. We we haven't monkeyed with the recipe too much. It's 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 been delicious, and we and we try not to change that. Interesting you say that because um, I distinctly remember back in two thousand four, I think uh, in two thousand three, I was tasting Pyramid at the Sonic game, and um, I think the recipe has changed in that ten years. I think it used to be a little bit darker and heavier. Now it seems like you've lightened it with some more hops. Is that the case? Oh, I uh, I can only speak to to how long I've been making it over the last eight years here, and been the same. We've, I can tell you that I haven't seen it change. That isn't to say that it hasn't. I'm sure it's changed over thirty years. I mean, in that time, it's it's moved from Kalama to Seattle, and and now we're making making it in in our production brewery in Portland. Uh, it, so I'm sure there's been some changes, but. Uh, at least over the time I've been making it over the last eight years, we haven't we haven't changed really anything about it. You're going to see some some variations year to year, and that sort of speaks to the the malt process, the and natural uh, ingredients that we're using. It so the malt changes annually, and the hops will will fluctuate some. You know, we we strive for consistency, but at the same time, you know, that's one one thing I love about craft is is especially with the seasonal 
product that's here for a few months and then goes away again, not only do you have some changes in the ingredients that went into it, but you've also got changes to your, your tastes from year to year. So even if the beer itself was exactly the same, you would probably taste it differently just by having, you know, maybe you were drinking uh, <laughs> was... pale ale for the year before last year, <laughs> and then that tasted like one thing. And then if you spend a year drinking IPA, it's going to taste like true. something else when you switch to snowcap. This is true. So That's what happens when you there's get a, to... There's a lot of moving parts there, but uh, we, we try and keep the beer the same, but at the same time, I taste changes year to year as well. So. Interesting. Well, um, I know that it still tastes delicious, and that's what really counts. Um, it is. Uh, it just seems to be a little light, lighter in color. It's, uh, it's a little more of the amber hue, a little more of that uh, chestnut color. Um, but in addition to, uh, you've expanded the line of Snowcap, correct? Yes. This year, um, we've tried to do something, some, a few different special things to celebrate the, the 30th anniversary. Um, for the last, I want to say, five, maybe six years now, uh, we have made a sort of a, a souped up version of Snowcap called Super Snowcap, but we've never put it in the bottle. It's always been something we've made, put on tap in our in our alehouse. Uh, and this year we, to, to celebrate the anniversary, we, we finally got around to putting it in the bottle. Had some nice uh, screen printed bottles made up to celebrate it. And uh finally out there on shelves so it's a little easier for people to find the help i'm looking at it here it's uh it's a pretty bottle it's got so the uh, seattle mariners aqua teal whatever it is and uh it's got a crescent moon and a snowflake and two numbers here which strike me as uh, very fun positive numbers 8.7 <laughs> yes so it, you know it's it's a big beer you know it, you're starting with with a robust beer and snow cap and so to 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 make it even bigger than that we we had to dial everything up a bit so it's 8.7%. It's definitely warming. Um, and it's got the same malts as Snowcap, slightly different percentages, but generally the same malt bill and the same hops just uh, monkeyed around a little bit just to, to make it pop. But you'll definitely taste the alcohol coming out more than in, in normal Snowcap. Definitely got some body. Uh, delicious. And, of course, it is still well-balanced. When you get that dark, multi flavor, you can balance it with the hops. Let's talk about your mash bill. What do you, what, uh, what's the secret, or is it a secret? you got 11 herbs and spices here or what? No, it's, it's uh, what, what I find is when, when we, we turn to these recipes we've made over the years, you can see that uh, the, the sort of the old-school craft beers are, are not horribly complicated. You know, this both Snowcap and Super Snowcap have three malts. We've got our, our, our pale ale malt, sort of our standard base malt. We've got some, some caramel 80, and we've got some chocolate malt. Excellent. Is that nothing, the crystal malt 80, too, 80 pound crystal? Too crazy. If they call it 80 pound crystal, or is it 80 pound? It's uh, 80 love a bond is the, ah. the color scale. Trying to remember my <laughs> brewing roots. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> and uh, your hop profile. So this tastes like you've got um, um, half bittering hops and half finishing hops. Yes, both Snowcap and Super Snowcap have have the same hops. There's just more of them in the Snowcap. And in fact, Snowcap, Super Snowcap, we dry hop as well, just to give it a little, little more uh, herbal pop there at the end to stand up with the. With the Chinook or make it even more special. Chinook hops, Kent Golding hops. It's uh, it's bittered with nuggets, which is uh, oh. a hop we use a lot here for bittering. It's a just a very uh, clean, clean bittering hop. It doesn't 
throw a lot of flavor, especially when you're just, when you're just boiling with it. You don't right. get much flavor out of it. It's just giving you that bitterness. But then um, we get it, Willamette and uh, Goldings uh, later on in the boil to give it a little more herbal, flowery uh, hop flavor. Some more aromas, not, yeah. Not, not the strong citrus sort of northwest hops we're used to tasting now. This is this is definitely in, in the style of a, or really inspired uh, by sort of a traditional English winter beer. I see. So it's also more imperial. I like that. Especially yeah. when the Star Wars movie comes out. <laughs> There's something to talk about. Um, uh, Pyramid is uh, nationwide, international. You've got uh, distribution everywhere. Uh, we are not nationwide. We're we're over. Uh, you know, I, I I can tell you exactly how far we cover, but we're over a good about half the country. We all right. Make it so those would be all the red states or all the blue states. We've come and gone from further abroad um, over the years. Um, we're really trying to focus here in the Northwest right now. So yeah. we, 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 you're not going to find our beer on the East Coast. It's been there off and on over the years. But but I know we're, we're throughout the, the Southwest. And, you know, I've got a cousin who distribute, works for a distributor in Texas, and I know he carries our beers. And uh, I've, I've heard it found in, in the Midwest here and there. Um, but, you know, we're, we're a Northwest brewery. And, we're, and we uh, love it. And what's the website? We're up here. What's the website? Oh, go! Oh, you put me on the spot. Pyramidbrewing.com. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's probably something. It's like pyramidbrew.com. Perfect. Pyramidbrews. Thank you for pyramidbrew. Just uh, singular, pyramidbrew. Uh, or is it? I think brew is probably plural too. But um, you have a special yeah. beer that's been sold out. It's called a bourbon finish, or bourbon cask, or something. Yeah. So, so just having a, a super snow cap in the bottle was cool, but we had to we had to up it even more for this 30th anniversary. I mean, to, to have a, a beer last for 30 years is is really that's a testament in this day it age. Is. Um, so uh, we we got our hands on some bourbon barrels last year when we were making snow cap, and we filled uh, a bunch of them up with snow cap and let it sit for about 10 months. And then this year we uh, we pulled them back out and and they sold uh, out. In yeah, it's it's we we didn't make a lot of it. It's an expensive beer to make, and we uh, you know it's really a celebratory special special beer. Well, we'll invite our friends uh, on uh, listening to go to pyramidbrew.com and check out all your beers. And Ryan Pappy, hey pal, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. My absolute pleasure to talk to you. All right, day. cheers, pal. Start your day the right way. John Carlson, live and local, 6 to 10 a.m., Talk Radio 570, KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Well, welcome back to Seattle. Welcome back to round two. Hope you got something great in your glass. And I've got a, a, a long, long time friend, uh, a great master sommelier out of New York. Uh, he's actually on the East Coast. His name is Fred Dexheimer. Had the pleasure of meeting him about uh, seven or eight years ago. And uh, he's got some really cool things happening on the East Coast. And we're going to talk about one of the hot new regions in the world that uh, is, is kind of old, but it's really new. And um, Fred Dexheimer, hey, man, welcome to Happy Hour. Hey, thanks, Chris. Great to be on the show today. Awesome. Well, um, you know, Saturday night here in Seattle, we love it. It's uh, People are digging the, the big hearty reds and, of course, uh, some cognacs and uh, all the champagne tis the season. Um, let's talk about how you got into wine. Well, uh, I'm in it for the money, the girls, <laughs> and uh, the action. Um, 
No, I got into wine um, at a young age when I was about 19, 20, working in Vermont at a ski lodge restaurant. And it took me on a pretty whirlwind adventure, um, you know, to Nantucket, uh, some really beautiful resort towns, um, you know, all because I picked up a wine book when I saw the opportunity as a waiter uh, to make a little more money. You know, I was looking at tables, um, you know, when, when tables were spending a little bit more money on wine, I was making more money in tips. And I said, hey, maybe there's something to this wine thing. <laughs> and a friend of mine, my friend of mine suggested to get a wine book. I got a wine book. Next thing you know, I'm 20 years old, calling up my 21-year-old my friend saying, hey, can you go to that supermarket, to that shelf, the fifth bottle on the third shelf? I need that one because I need to research Beaujolais. I need to research Burgundy. I was reading these books. I had no idea what I was doing. And uh, that kind of was the beginning of it. And uh, then I got an opportunity from that experience for a couple of years to move to New York uh, to work at Restaurant Danielle in the cellar. Oh, wow. Um, which led me to which wow. led me to Gramercy Tavern, which led me to you know some of the greatest restaurants in the United States and in the world. That's that easy, huh? You pick up a book, and next thing you know, you're on your way to uh, some of the hottest places and culinary destinations in New York. Yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, blind luck. Um, yeah, you know, and also, you know, I, I figured out, you know, you got to work in a cellar. You got to learn how to bartend. You got to bust tables. You got to you gotta learn how to do everything in the restaurant. I also worked in retail. You know, I had a, you know, I was hustling three jobs at a time. Um, you know, I maybe, you know, I barely slept because, you know, after after work as a waiter or a bartender, you're not going home, right? Right. You're going to you're going to see how the other half lives, and then you know waking up, ten you know ten a.m. and hitting lunch service and hitting the cellar again. But yeah, that was uh, close to twenty years ago, man. So wow, um, like I said, I, I got I've been in this a long time, but um, yeah, pick up a book, read, you know, go and 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 try to find a place where you can you know schlep some boxes, uh, get into a restaurant. You know, if I were in Seattle at that time, I would go right to Canlis, man. I would just go right to Canlis and be knocking on that cellar door until they let me work for free. Yeah, for sure. We've had uh, some great people, Rob Bigelow and Shane Bjornholm and Nelson DeKip and the team are out there. Um, and it's interesting, too. We talk about uh, master sommeliers and sommeliers, etc. And a lot of times with this new uh, identity we have in, in, in this world, people think we're all about spouting off facts and figures. But really, it's all about hospitality. This is about improving the guest experience. Isn't that right? Absolutely. You know, um, you know, but I think, you know, inherently, once you start learning that, you know, all these, these, these new words and these new regions, there, there is kind of just a knee-jerk reaction to kind of spit out what you've learned. Yeah. And that just takes, you know, that's experience, as you know. Um, you know, but you also just have to understand that it's grape juice, fermented grape juice, and all of those facts don't mean a hill of beans to a guest. <laughs> uh, the experience does, you know, and, and I work in an environment where I'm training a young staff here. Um, we change the menu every night because uh, we, we're we in North Carolina, so we have everything coming from 30 miles away. Uh, so I'm, I'm constantly changing the wine menu to match what they're, you know, what, you know, things like borage that I've never heard of and wow. mushrooms and nasturtium and, and these kind of, these kind of, you know, they, they're doing these Asian broths and dashi and stuff like this. And this is stuff that, like, I have to work to. But when I go to the guests, I teach my team. It's like, this is delicious with this, and you need to drink them. You need to drink this with this dish because that's what, that's what you're going to have fun tonight with that. You know, don't worry about the terms. Don't worry about this. You know, you know as wine directors, wine sommeliers, whatever, we want to put great wines on the list, delicious wines on the list, wines that relate, you know. For sure. So yeah, it's all, about, it's all about giving. It's all about sharing your knowledge, but not in – 
you know, a textbook way, in an experiential way. How did you get into the court of Master Sommiers? Well, um, I had heard about it. Believe it or not, I was living in Jackson Hole, and Ken Fredrickson, who owns company in, in, uh, in, um, in um, Chicago now, he was like the big guy in town. He's like, hey, I'm going to do this quartermaster sommelier thing. And I was like, I was studying wine at that time, and I had no idea that this existed. Literally, right. I had no clue that there was this career, like sommelier thing. And serendipitously, he's like, hey, I'm studying. And he was like talking about the master sommelier dance. Take in mind, this is 1998, 1999, and it took me two years to even figure out that this test existed, and I was living in New York at Gramercy Tavern, and I had to go to Toronto to take the test. Really? And I remember, yeah, they did like three or four, four five of them a year, and the, the proctors had like, you know, they had a, the old AV, um, what do they call the <laughs> Overhead. Yeah, the overhead, right? The overhead. Yeah, and it was Belding and uh, Ornowski, Doug Frost, and um, uh, who was the other guy? Uh, geez, there's, I can't believe it. Was it Joe, Julian? Joe Spellman. Oh, Spellman? Spellman. Yeah, who was the guy? That, yeah, so, so I took the first test, and I was like, wow, man, this is incredible. And lucky enough, they did the advanced course, which now is very difficult to get into. I mean, right. it's like Fort Knox to get into that. There's <laughs> almost 1,000 people, you know, signing up a year. They can accept 125. 2003... I think like 20 of us took the exam, right? Wow. 25 of us at yeah. the most. You remember back in the, the day I like do. that? Yeah. And uh, so I got lucky. It was in New York City, so I didn't have to travel, which was great, you know, and I was in my hometown, and I had that to my advantage, and I passed that exam, and then I uh, went for the master. The and, advance you know, was three parts three, back three then, times. too? It was uh, three parts service theory and tasting? Yeah, the, so it was before what they have now is the intro, then a certification. Then you now you have to take an advanced course right. to prove that you're ready for the advanced exam because there were just so many people getting you know beat up in between there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now like uh, now they have this these kind of stop gaps to and it, and it's to make sure that the candidates get the best experience. That's really what it's about. Right. It's not about trying to make it more difficult. It's actually trying to say, hey, here's what the expectation is, and we want you to succeed. So it's pretty good, um, pretty good measure. But there's a, it's a bigger uh, hill to climb than when um, when I was there, I believe. But yeah, I passed. Uh, yeah, it was a theory exam, uh, which is really difficult. Eighty plus questions. Right. And I remember studying for that with a group of psalms in New York and, you know, just with, you know, and this is before flashcard stuff. You know, people now use these flashcards. <laughs> I think people have seen the movie Psalms. Yeah. Literally, I created a database of questions and just asked my girlfriend at the time, you know, my wife now, just like, hey, just keep going through all these questions. And questions were flying around until I get every one of them right. Right. And if I get all of these right, I have a chance. <laughs> She's um, saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, and then service, man. I, I think I had a puddle on the floor somewhere in that room. Um, you know. Um, yeah. You, you know. Imagine you're in some you restaurant go... that you've never been to in some menu, and you got to recommend wines to people who you admire. And oh gosh, that's quite a that's a, a knee knocker. Yeah, man. And I remember one of the guys, Matt Satrigia, who's a great master on the board and everything. He's done great things for Ohio and East Coast. He's like, dude, you're doing great, man. You're doing great. I'm like. No, I'm not. No, <laughs> I know. Um, and then yeah, and, and then the tasting, which everybody you know thinks that this is an innate thing, but really, I trained my butt off. It's like anything, running a marathon or you know training for it. I looked at the tasting as training to be an athlete, right? You know, and and training my palate, 
training my nose, training my eyes, training uh, my, the textures, you know, and, you know, trying to look at it from that lens. Yeah, and that's what uh, a lot of people just taste wine, they drink it, and they, they, they don't take that extra step, and that's kind of what we do as sommeliers. Um, but you have a new project. Tell me what's going on in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Well, yeah, so I uh, moved down here a couple of years ago, and now I'm involved in a project called Standard Foods, which um, is a pretty holistic restaurant. Uh, we have a market butcher shop. I think that's becoming more common, these kind of like multi-purpose restaurant butcher shop kind of thing you're seeing. Um, so all of our stuff is uh, non-GMO, as organic and biodynamic as it can be. We have a, I'm walking through the backyard right now. I wow. have my own row of kale. I have my own <laughs> row of kale that I juice for cocktails. Um, yeah, and then we have uh, about an 80-seat restaurant. Um, the menu is pretty diverse, global, a couple young chefs um, coming from Denver and Charleston. Uh, is this your brainchild, you know, or did you uh, get, be asked on by partnership, or how did that come together? Well, I had a different brainchild called Allier, which is a forest and department in France. Right. Um, uh, and, you know, sometimes, um, so that was going to be a sommelier-driven wine restaurant, meaning, like, I was going to take the best parts of a restaurant like, you know, Gramercy or Eleven Madison Park and smash them into a more casual wine bar thing um, with just all sommelier service. So anybody that touched tables, I had the team ready. Right. But a chef, uh, you know, there was a chef change at another place. We had a spot. The, the owner was the, the investor owner was the same guy. So we said, look, you need a chef. I have the team. We'll come over here, do this, and then we'll do that project next. Awesome. Wow, this is great. So like, well, life takes, you know, you never know where you end up. I mean, who would have known that you're going to be the director of the Washington Wine and Oregon Wine and having a radio show. <laughs> exactly. It's all how we apply ourselves. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. When we come back from this break, we're going to get into one of the cool new regions or hot new regions or one of the regions that's up and coming. And as sommeliers, we look for those things. I'm speaking with Fred Dexheimer, Master Sommeliers on the East Coast, coming to me live right here on KVI and Happy Hour Radio. A Northwest Original, Lars Larson, live weekdays noon to 3, Talk Radio 570, KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, folks, hope you have a great Saturday night. Time for round three. I've got uh, Fred Dexheimer, Master Sommeliers on the East Coast uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Took some time out of his busy schedule to talk to us on Saturday night. Uh, so, Fred, you know, in this world of wine, um, we're always looking for the next great value or the next old vine area. What's on your horizon? What are one of those places that we can talk about? Well, yeah. Well, today I think we should talk about Chile. Uh, one of my uh, one of my wheelhouses. I've been buying Chilean wine since my early career. Um, I've been to Chile seven times. Wow. Uh, I do work with them. And, you know, there's a lot of great places for value in the world, but as far as varietal wines, and I know, you know, you live in Washington, there's some great stuff there, great stuff in California, great stuff all over the world, but I, I think pound for pound, it's really hard to beat what Chile's up to now, um, especially since the rediscovery of, uh, of Carmen Air, um, which we'll talk about. You got some bottles there, which are pretty cool. Um, but across the board from Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Cabernet, blends, and some old vine stuff coming on, Carignan, Pais. Uh, Chile's really exciting right now, and um, I, I don't see 
other other regions um, or countries in the world being able to compete on a price level. Um, you know, it's kind of like you're getting, you know, it's I call it the Nordstrom rack effect, right? <laughs> Where you can go in and you can go in and get the designer jeans that are 200 bucks for 125 bucks or 150 bucks, you know, and feel good about yourself and walk out with two, <laughs> not, you know. So like that's it. my mentality on that. Oh, that's perfect. That's a great Seattle reference. Well, when we talk about Chile, obviously we're talking about South America. And for all those who don't know, Chile is a very thin, long country. It, uh, it's, it, it's on the side of the, uh, uh, well, it's next on the, the coastal side of the Andes. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, you got the Pacific Ocean, you got the Atacama Desert, dry desert in the world, you got the Andes Mountains, uh, right next door, you have Argentina right next door, and then you got, you know, the beautiful glaciers, the Patagonia, you know, Patagonia. So you have these, these incredible natural borders. The wine region is basically tucked right in the middle there between the coast and the Andes, and they run, the wine regions run nearly all the way up to the desert, uh, now, you know, now in the last 20 years up to the desert. They've been pushing out to the coast, and they've been going up into the Andes, as well as finding places all the way down south and breaking out of that little pocket of Santiago, which is the which is the capital. Right, Santiago being the main hub there, and um, you know it's interesting how Argentina has really broke through into the U.S. market, and I know that Chile will be there as well. Um, You've been to Chile seven times, you say. Let's talk about some of the regions. We've got uh, Lamari Valley. We've got uh, Maui and Rappel. We've got Calchagua and Aconcagua. Is that right? Aconcagua, Cochagua, Maule, Limari, yes, Maipo. I would say, you know, and, and there's, you know, when I started, when, I, when, when we started our sommelier pass, Chris, when we looked at a wine book of Chile, there were maybe four to six regions. Now there are 16. 16? And what? 16, dude. Oh, my dude. goodness. Up north to south, there's 16 um, regions that are now identified and at least planted. Maybe the fruit's not online in the bottle, but they're planted. Um, and imagine, and, and when I started, there were 12 uh, working with Chile. There's six, in, in seven years, there's four more, you know, regions online, not to mention this old vine rediscovery, new plantings on the coast within those regions. Um, I was just there in... June and some of the stuff the winemakers are showing me was like, what? You know, how exciting! Planted where? This is planted where? Yeah. You know, um, and it's that kind of thing. It's kind of you know, and I'm sure like Washington went through that renaissance, you know, in Walla Walla, you know, and some other places that are you know that are being you know kind of explored into the more extreme places. Right. With it's irrigation, with the, you know, now that you got irrigation taken care of and some other stuff. It's interesting. So it's the doors up. Interesting to, to, to look at a place, a patch of land and go, nothing's growing there, but gosh, a vine will actually grow there pretty darn well. If I'll you like... can get it water. Yeah, that's you know, right. And it's, and, it's, and it's the right soil type and the right, the right climate. I mean, Chile is like warm in the, you know, you know, you got that diurnal or thermal amplitude with the, the shift of temperatures. Right, the hot day in the sun so and then got, cool at night. Yeah, man, and Chile has that. You get 30-degree differences, so you can grow grapes of high quality. You can get the sugars you need and get the, you know, and retain the acidity. Um, you need a little irrigation. You need to plant the right things. And then, you know, over the last, um, you know, 10 to 15 years, I think Chile is really turned on the winemaking thing because they're in the southern hemisphere and they're getting winemakers coming down from napa bordeaux uh italy you know burgundy from the northern hemisphere and that allows them when they're done with harvest and putting wine in the barrel to go up and do a little r&d 
up in the up in the northern hemisphere in some of the greatest wine regions in the world. And to me, that shared information has really skyrocketed the quality. I agree, and it's pretty exciting. Uh, speaking with Fred Dexheimer, Master Sommelier, and we'll call him our Chilean expert. And uh, uh, Fred, I've got some two bottles of Carmenere here. Um, Carmenere is one of the long-lost grapes of Bordeaux, we say, and of course that, that family includes Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, C- Cabernet Franc, uh, Malbec, and Petit Verdot, and then Carmenere, right? Yes, sir. All right. So, what what are the aspects of Carmenere that we're looking for? What makes a great Carmenere? Because it's really there's not much in Bordeaux, although there's like a couple acres, and I've actually had 100 percent Carmenere from Bordeaux. But uh, it's one of these new varietals that the New World is working on. Um, but it's been in Chile for how long? Well, look, man, it's it was brought over to Chile sometime in the 1850s and 60s when Chileans to mine and become wealthy. They looked to Europe and said, hey, I want that lifestyle. I want to have a chateau. <laughs> I want to have a vineyard. Women and the girls, too, right? Yeah, the money and the girls. Yeah, right? <laughs> so they had the money. Um, they needed the girls, the vine. So they, <laughs> they basically commissioned uh, commissioned agronomists or agriculturists go to Bordeaux, go pick cuttings, and then come back. So what happened in the meantime is, um, I don't know if your listeners know about this, but the little root louse, phylloxera, that actually came over from the U.S. on, on vines, um, which the vines were um, completely resistant to this little louse. When it was planted in Europe, went rampant, and uh, because the vines in Europe were a different species, vinifera, uh, it wiped out a lot of the vineyards, including a lot of Bordeaux in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. And what they did is they decided not to plant Carmenere. So basically it was wiped off the map because Carmenere was a very difficult variety. Um, it, it ripens late, it buds late, and the Chileans have had it for 150 years, and all that Cabernet Merlot and Merlot that anyone's ever drunk in the 80s, 90s, uh, or, you know, early 90s from Chile, the first bottle of wine I ever poured by the glass was Conchitoro Cabernet Merlot out of Magnum, and I'm ass- <laughs> I assure you that it was Carmenere picked three weeks early, um, and it was cheap and cheerful. But they'd rediscovered it in 1994 when a French guy said, this is not Merlot, and he was the expert in uh, <laughs> leaves and plants. So they rediscovered it. The Chileans say, oh, you know, oh, crap, you know, what are we going to do now that, you know, half of our vineyards that we thought were Merlot or other things are Carbonaire? So they really had to dig deep and really had to look within and understand how this variety worked. So that was the first thing. They really had to look at vineyards. And literally half the vineyards that were planted in Merlot – and others. It wasn't just Merlot. Malbec was involved in this. Cabernet was involved in this. Franc was involved in this because they planted, they field blended, right? And right. That's what happens in Bordeaux. So a lot of these things were just cuttings from just chateaus, and they just planted it. And they were like, yep. And then in the 80s, they were told it was Merlot. They knew it as Tinto before that. Uh-huh. You know, they didn't care what it was. The, the, the <laughs> Tinto. Were, it's just Tinto, and it was part of lifestyle until the commercialization and the export market happened. But anyway, not to get all uh, professoral on it, um, but uh, in the 90s, f- they rediscovered it. Give me a fruit profile for Carmenere. Give me what, what type of fruit, what's the wine supposed to taste like? So the wine in the best, so when you asked about this, the wine has to be planted in a vineyard that has a lot of clay okay. and has enough sunshine because it needs to retain water for those last couple of weeks of ripening or else the leaves die off and uh, it doesn't get the water and the photosynthesis it needs. So what happens is, uh, the profile of Carmenere is silky as a texture. It should be silkier than Cabernet, silkier than Merlot even, softer than Merlot, juicier than both of them, you know. And you're looking at both red and black fruits. You're looking at black cherry, red cherry, 
Um, you're looking at raspberry, plum, um, but but juicy, almost almost gushing, you know, almost gushing. But the beautiful thing about carbonara is, for those who like exotic foods, you know, if you like Indian food, you like Latin food, you like African food, it has this this spice box that I don't think any other grape variety really has. Cardamom, cumin, coriander, cinnamon, um, nutmeg, inherently, without even without oak. Um, and then you get a little smoky, dark chocolatey note. Um, and oftentimes, not a bad thing. And a lot, I think a lot of people pin this as a bad thing, but it's Dad's Cabernet Franc, and that's the most herbaceous grape of all of them. You're going to get that little bit of roasted bell pepper. And who doesn't like a little roasted bell pepper? Think about a kebab. Yeah. Season the kebab right. on the grill with like some exotic spices and you, and, and you, you know, some of the aforementioned things. Chinese five spice, whatever, <laughs> with bell pepper and a little bit of sweet onion, you know, you're going to get those flavors in addition to all that fruit. Awesome. Well, I've got two bottles here. When we come back from this break, we're going to dive into the 2011 Coily Royale Carmenere from uh, Alto Cochagua and then the Casa Silva Carmenere from 2014 with my pal Fred Dexheimer, Master Sommelier, right here on Happy Hour Radio. Big names, big news. Sean Hannity, weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. Talk Radio 570, KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle Sommelier, Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back. Time for round four, our fourth and final segment. And I've got uh, one of the cool cats in the biz, Fred Dexheimer's Master Sommelier. Um, Fred, what's the name of this brand new restaurant you're working at in Raleigh? Standard Foods. Standard Foods. StandardFoods.com. Is that what we got? It's www.standard-foods.com, and it's a pun. Nothing standard. <laughs> got it. All right. Well, um, the new standard for Chilean wine is Great Carmenere, right? And uh, you've yes, been sir. down there seven times. Uh, tell me about this tw- the 2011 vintage of Coily Royale Carmenere. Well, I got to tell you, that's one of the coolest vineyards I've ever been to. Um, uh, Toti uh, is the name of the guy who owns it, uh, part of the Undaraga family, and it's biodynamically farmed. And I was there in June, and I'm sitting there in this guy's office, and pigs and chickens and dogs and sheep are all walking around in the vineyard uh, because it's a very holistic environment. Um, it's one of the coolest, uh, you know, kind of, you, you know, um, permaculture vineyards in, in, in all of Chile. Um, undulating hills, uh, the Carmenere he grows in Colchagua is some of the best, you know, dirt for, um, for um, you know, Carmenere because you need a little bit of that clay. And with all the beautiful, um, you know, animals and everything that are doing their work in this holistic environment, the fruit there is super bright. Um, I think his wine leads more on the red fruit side of the Carmenere, um, you know, juicy red plum, red berry. Um, you know, his wines tend to be, you know, you know, texturally really, you know, round and um, really elegant. But there's a lot of depth because the fruit quality is so good. Um, you're going to get that hallmark, you know, spice. Like I talked about that, that, that Asian exotic spices. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which you get there, but they're softer. I find his wines to be a little bit softer and uh, a bit more tame. Uh, so for those who really love the exotic spices, the Koyle is a little bit, to me, on the softer side of that. Koyle is spelled K-O-Y-L-E. It's a 2011 vintage. I took a sip. Um, this is really a well-polished, gorgeous wine. It's round. It does have the, the red and dark root f- fruit flavors. It does have that spice box, and you're like just kind of drawn into this glass with the long nose and... And just it's kind of heaty on on the nose, but it's it's very elegant, but has ripeness and, and it's a touch of richness. They got some some oak on this wine too. Yeah, and you know I would say the idea there with the oak is that the Chileans in the last ten years have really understood how to how to you know like you know how people love French food yeah. and you know you want to cook with butter, but now <laughs> people are like oh we want just a little bit of butter in the food, but we still want we still want we still want hood, you know wink wink. We yeah. still want the French food experience. Um, I think this wine does that extremely well because he's a seasoned guy. He's been making wine for twenty plus years. He knows what he, you know, he knows the vineyard. He knows what he's up to. And you want some of that oak. You awesome. want some of that for tex- for texture. And when you say polish, that's a to me that's a great word. Uh, I think uh, to me, a consumer wants a polished wine. They want a finished wine. It's like you wouldn't go buy a, a Mercedes. You know, with one, you know, half leather seats. Right. You know. Yeah. You know, you got to be complete. You, 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 yeah. Hey. So you know. Yeah. Next wine is a Casa Silva. Um, this is also in the Colchagua Valley. This is 2014. Tell me about this place, Casa well, Silva. Casa, Casa Silva's impact on Carmenere can't even be. You know, they're one of the most, if not the most, important winery uh, for Carmenere because they planted an experimental vineyard in a place called Los Linges in Colchagua in 1996, and basically they um, planted every, they, they took cuttings and plants from everyone they could get in Chile, from up and down, all around, and what they did is an experimental vineyard, and basically they let the strongest vine survive. Wow. So that meaning, uh, they, not the strongest vine survive in a sense of vines died, but the strongest vines that had the, the, the best flavor profile, that had the best pedigree. Wow. And um, so... These guys put all, when they figured out Carmenere in Chile, these, this was the winery that put all the chips in. Um, they, they, it's a pretty cool place to go because they have the Chilean rodeo there. It's very old school Chilean, a ranch in this restaurant. And, um, you know, everyone's wearing the, the Huaso hat. You can go see the Chilean rodeo. Right. Uh, get, you know, the Chilean barbecue and empanadas and real experience there. <laughs> and I think this, I think this wine um, is slightly more rustic um, in the profile of Carmenere. Um, it is. You get a lot. You it, get a lot more of that. Like, you know, if if you ever made garam masala for like a chicken curry, like a chica masala, or if you like if you like Indian food, it's got a lot of that stuff and a lot of that smoke. I um, love it's it. Not mod- Fred, it's not give me a, give me a website for so people can can learn more about Chilean wine. Where should they go? Well, two places. Uh, they can they can go to www.winesofchile.org. Yes. They can go on the Wines of Chile Facebook or Drink Chile Twitter. Or they can find me, uh, www.freddexms.com. I love it. Fred Dex, it's so great to talk to you. Um, Chile is really a fabulous place with some great wines coming out of there. Thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Let's connect again soon. Hey, man, it's been too long. Happy Hour to you, brother. All right. Hey, folks, hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, when you're out and about, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers. Cheers.